0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Bonnie Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week, we're discussing doctors' claims that too many mental health patients are essentially being locked up against their will.
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us using the hashtag Medical Minefield or follow us on Twitter at MedMinefield. Now, Eve, when this first got discussed in the office, I was quite surprised because in my mind, I thought the days of mental health patients en masse being incarcerated, being sectioned. I think it's the vernacular term sectioned mm. under the Mental, the mental Health, health Act, Act, which basically means that they are being admitted, you know, against their will to hospital, a bit like being put in prison mm. because there are there are harm to themselves or, or someone else. I, I thought that was quite rare, but apparently it's not. Our reporter, Cameron Henderson, has been looking into this And Cameron, you're going to tell us a little bit about what you found out. Yeah, I was surprised
2: too, Barney. But looking at the statistics from NHS Digital, you can see that uh, there's currently 53,000 people a year being detained under the Mental Health Act.
0: God, that's a huge number.
2: Yeah, it is. But this this is a rise. Yeah, this has been going on year on year since the mid-1980s. It's sort of uh, leveled out a bit in the 2000s. But, yeah, every year more and more people being detained, which goes completely against what you might expect uh, with, you know, shortages on the NHS, et cetera.
0: Now, I thought that it was around that time in the sort of 70s, 80s, that they really had a drive to change the way that mental health was treated. So they wanted people to be treated much more in the community. And all these big mental hospitals were being closed down during that period.
2: Yeah so I think it was through the 50s and 60s that the main asylums people remember were being closed down and this push towards community care was, uh, was on the rise but at the same time you basically have this uptick gradually in private health facilities offering effectively detention centres for people who are mentally unwell.
0: Well and... you say detention centres, I mean tr- that,
2: that people get treatment there I presume? Mm. Sure people get treatment there but the reports I've heard from psychiatrists speaking on the issue is that these places effectively warehouse, quote, patients, and uh, that although they are investigated by the Care Quality Commission to assess the quality of treatment they're offering, the psychiatrists have concerns that it's subpar, that patients, especially patients with personality disorders, don't improve in this environment, and that over time they deteriorate even more. And in fact, these patients would be much better off if they were cared for in the community, as we would assume they would be and uh, had a bit more autonomy over their own lives.
1: These so-called warehouses, are they only treating patients who are there under a section order or are they treating just kind of severely mentally unwell people who might need to be in hospital in an inpatient setting?
2: When When I mentioned the warehouses, I think I'm only talking about patients who are there under a section order. Other patients who are severely mentally unwell, there's a lot of crossover between uh, different facilities with some offering a sort of hybrid service. But yes, this is specifically for patients who've been sectioned.
0: So some facilities just deal with patients who have been sectioned or will you find people side by side?
2: I've heard of facilities where patients are treated side by side, but there may well also be facilities where it's just patients who've been sectioned who are held there for often extended periods of time.
0: And what kind of illnesses do these people who are sectioned, you know, I mean, I suppose the psychiatrist you've spoken to th- feel that they're being sectioned inappropriately. Mm. And What kind of illnesses do they have?
2: Well, in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about people with autism and learning disabilities mm. being sectioned inappropriately. But the concern the psychiatrists have raised this time is particularly to do with personality disorders. So in certain mental health conditions, for instance, psychosis and schizophrenia, there are supposedly cases of extreme symptoms where it can be appropriate to detain people for a certain period of time until their symptoms abate and they can recover in that period. But for personality disorders, them in under the same treatment apparently doesn't work and all the evidence for it suggests that the treatment for them which is usually psychiatry based actually only works in a voluntary setting which is psychotherapy so locking these people up isn't going to help why are doctors doing this So it's a really interesting question. None of the psychiatrists I've spoken to think there's anything vindictive going on per se. But it goes back to a report in 2018 by Simon Wesley. It was a review of the Mental Health Act. And in this report, he cited this concern about this fear among clinicians that if they aren't strict enough about their treatment and they don't detain patients, these patients can end up doing something awful and causing harm to themselves or others and that the doctor will then be held responsible. Um. Uh, defensive medicine
0: mm. which is something we've covered I'm on the podcast before, before yeah. carrying out medical practices not in the, necessarily in the best interests of the patient but
1: because you're, you're scared of being sued simply because you're scared
0: of being sued well that would make sense because it's going on everywhere
1: is that what's going on here then
2: Yes, that's what the doctors i told believe. There's also this idea of historically in society, we see patients who are mentally unwell and we hear the awful stories about them you know, causing violence to others. And you might even think you see people in the street who you think, oh, they must be horribly mentally unwell. Mm. But apparently the reality is they're very rarely a risk to other people Obviously, more so a risk to themselves, but this sort of culture of fears develops not only among clinicians but in society itself. And as a result, there's this feeling that these people should be locked up when, in fact, there's better treatment options available.
0: Well, thanks very much, Cameron. Before we go any further, I think we should hear from a patient who this has affected.
1: On the line now is Lois, who is currently being treated in a psychiatric hospital for problems related to a personality disorder. She's there voluntarily, but in the past, she has been held in a mental health hospital under a section order. Lois, will you tell us a little bit about how you came to needing mental health treatment and and how did the section order come into play?
3: So I became mentally unwell when I was 21 following traumatic events. I'm 27 now. I first went through a phase of Being quite impulsive, erratic, spending money, taking out loans that I couldn't afford, partying, being everyone's best friend. And then I crashed. And with that came severe depression. So I went to my GP who prescribed me antidepressants and then I started self-harming. The depression just got worse until I then ended up in General Hospital after taking an overdose. I was in and out of General Hospital and was seen by the community mental health team and then went into a psychiatric hospital voluntarily and then did go into a hospital and was very unwell. When I look back now, even though I didn't realise at the time, and couldn't see a way out and then ended up being involuntary detained under the Mental Health Act whilst I was there.
1: Was that because the doctors had concern that you you would be a danger to yourself? Is that why? It is, yeah. Gosh. And if I can ask, the first time that you went into hospital voluntarily and this time when it was being forced upon you. Can you explain what the difference in experience was between those two
3: events? I think with when the mental health act's used is the fact that medication can be given whether you like it or not. Use of medication such as what's referred to as being im being basically given intramuscular injection such as sedating medication to calm you down, which isn't nice and restraint being used.
0: So, Lois, can I ask, they injected you forcibly with this medication? Yeah. Gosh, that must have been very traumatic.
3: Yeah, at the age of 21, 22, it's, it's scary. Like, I can sort of understand at times that it is required, but then... But other times it can seem very excessive and it does add to trauma, the whole
1: process of that. And do you think that treatment, it sounds quite punitive, do do you
3: think that that helped you? I feel sometimes looking back now from the place where I currently am, where it is least restrictive and how well it works and how far I've come. I just feel like I wish other places would take this approach because being able to take responsibility for yourself and being given that trust and that independence and that accountability, it helps so much more than the restrictive aspect of things.
0: Do you think, Lois, maybe that being sectioned for you was the wrong thing, that it, it made things worse? Yeah.
3: I see at times it was necessary, but the length of time that it was for, I feel for crisis periods, I could see why. However, I feel that the length of time, like 28 day sections and six month sections, I feel that those time scales are too length of a stretch. And I think, especially with personality disorders, it's a very difficult one because. I feel the longer that you are kept in deception, the, the more disabling it can become. Are you scared
0: that it might happen again?
3: I feel that the program where I am now is so robust and prepares you so well for life on the outside, and gives you so many life skills and has. So much input in different varieties and aspects of life that I feel I'm out of that i want to call the revolving door patient system. This opportunity has given me that chance to get out of that revolving door. when
0: you were sectioned, did you meet other people that you thought shouldn't be sectioned as well that it was doing them no good too? yeah, so you you're not the only one,
3: yeah, definitely, definitely and I had family to fight my corner and fight for me when I felt that I wasn't being listened to and seeing other people that didn't have that, that's what led me to want to go into a career in advocacy when I do leave here and get the life that I want.
1: Well, Lewis, it's good to to hear that you're doing much better now. And we're so grateful for you taking some time to have a a chat with us today. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Thank
3: you very much.
0: I actually have a little bit of experience of this. You have some experience Mm -hmm. of what life is like inside Mm -hmm. psychiatric hospitals. Mm -hmm. My experience is a lot more historic uh, when I was a teenager a friend of mine ended up being sectioned, Mm. I think, for six months in the end after suffering from drug-induced psychosis, marijuana-induced psychosis. Interesting. Um, And this was in the 90s, and we went there to visit my friend. Actually, before that, my friend was in an adult facility in South London, Mm. which was almost like a a holding facility mm. before people were placed elsewhere, my impression was well certainly that the adult facility wasn't the kind of place where people got better mm. the larger facility clearly was and my friend did improve and get better mm. and has is very well now mm-hmm. um, yeah. but it was a huge, very significant thing and obviously as a as a teenager, my friend was able to put that behind them. But I think for an adult to bounce back from that kind of gap in in your life where you're taken away from everything. I mean it's a bit like going to jail, isn't it? You mm. know, that, that you're you know, what are you gonna tell people? Where were you for six months a year? You know, you, you can't live any kind of normal life. You're not allowed out if you don't toe the line, if you don't say the right things in your sessions with psychiatrists, if you don't take your medication. Or, you know, you resist them giving you the medication. You know, you have privileges taken away. I mean, it, essentially, you have no freedom whatsoever. Mm. So the idea that these sections are are in ever-increasing, it is a worry.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, as you said, was in a psychiatric hospital. And a lot of what Lois was saying did ring true. I was not under a section. I was there voluntarily. But there were 14 patients on my ward and I think about five of them were there under a section. What was interesting was that the and this, was this was an eating disorders yeah. unit. What was interesting to me was that the culture of the ward was the same whether you were there voluntarily or not. And it doesn't take long before you adopt as a patient this sort of very strange dynamic between yourself and the people who are there supposed to look after you, they do become almost like your prison guards because they are denying you of your freedoms. And when there's rules in place, for instance, you can only take a shower at this time, you can't go downstairs to the garden for longer than five minutes without being chaperoned, you're not allowed to have a walk around, you're not all of those rules, you quickly become kind of institutionalized, really, and you're trying to kick back against the staff, which is develop a
0: kind of oppositional
1: Exactly, and that's not conducive to recovering from an illness that's incredibly hard to treat because you're supposed to be working with the people who are there to care for you. I could very easily see how people become unable to leave that environment Mm -hmm. if they don't have anything that's particularly safe or comforting on the outside and there were patients who were in their 60s that had been under section orders for years and years but had no real motivation to leave because no this was just what they were used to. And I remember thinking it was heartbreaking that these were, were lives that could have been really full and were just lost because of this environment.
0: And there's no doubt that in the case of my friend, mm. I, I was there just before they were sectioned. And, you know, it involved a very worrying, psychotic Breakdown, basically. And I would say it was possibly the right thing to do mm. because there was nothing else. And and I think everyone had looked for every other option before mm. that point came. But it should always be that last resort.
1: Absolutely. And I also think that it's possible to have a treatment centre or a unit or whatever that deals with these very, very acute, difficult to treat mental health problems, but does it in a way that is kind and offering some sort of human comfort rather than treating people like they are prisoners. I often say that my NHS treatment in an inpatient unit for eating disorders was traumatic and horrific, Mm. and I don't think that treatment should be that way. But if it wasn't for that treatment, I don't know if I would have even survived. I certainly wouldn't have recovered. And you do need that short, sharp shock sometimes to make you start on the road to recovery when nothing else has worked.
0: Yeah. Well, I I want to ask you a bit more about that. But uh, next, let's hear from a health professional who is very concerned about this situation.
1: Joining us now is Kia Harding, who is an occupational therapist specialising in mental health. Kia, you wrote quite a passionate article about this topic, and you've said that you feel that too many patients are being given section orders. Why is it that you decided to write about this, and when did you become aware of the problem?
4: So, probably for the past 10, 12 years, I've worked with people who use self harm as a way of coping, often feel that life isn't worth living. And we tend not to provide a lot of help in the community for people with those problems. So when staff are working with people who have those problems in the community, they often get quite frightened. And a way of managing that fear is for people to be in hospital, to be forced to stop self-harming, to be watched to make sure that they don't do anything to end their life. Now, one of the difficulties that you have there is once you get people, and, and the people I've worked with have predominantly lived through profound neglect and abuse. You know? So once you get people who've had that background, you put them in an environment where they've got very little power, their usual ways of coping are taken away. There's incredible power dynamics where you know you are compelled to do things, you have very little autonomy. It's not then that hospital starts to keep people safe. It can make things even more dangerous for people. You know, if 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 I took away all the things that you normally did to manage your distress, it's not like you would suddenly be okay, is it it would it would make things worse for you. So I used to see people who would go from doing things that were perhaps a bit dangerous in the community, but they would then seek help to seeing them stuck in hospital wards where they were regularly doing things that could kill them within minutes. When a review of our Mental Health Act was written a couple of years ago, one of the things that Sir Simon Wesley, the author, identified was that a lot of the reasons that we restrict people are because staff are fearful, staff are frightened of the outcome of perhaps letting somebody out of hospital and them doing something that means that that staff member and that organisation is going to get the blame for it. I previously wrote something in The Lancet a few years back saying that One of the reasons that we force people to go into private hospitals that are quite inadequate um, is that we're frightened of them doing something dangerous on our patch, so we'll put them somewhere, even if we're aware that there's not a lot of help available there, we'll put them somewhere else so that that risk goes elsewhere. And I think when I read Sir Simon Wesley's review of the Mental Health Act, I was really grateful that somebody was identifying that fear and identifying that frightened staff. Doing things that respond to their fear rather than in the best interests of their patients is causing problems. Now, one of the reasons I wrote that article the other week is that now that we've got a draft mental health bill, I don't think it identifies that fear. I don't think it acknowledges it and comes up with responses as to what people could do differently to bring that fear down and mean traumatised people are supported in environments that are less likely to re-traumatise them.
0: Keir, can I ask, what criteria needs to be met for someone to be sectioned?
4: So the biggest thing that people will look for is a risk to self or others as a result of some kind of mental illness or disturbance. That's what you're always looking for, risk to self or others.
0: Who decides that?
4: In, In some ways, you know, it could be anybody kind of saying I am very very concerned about someone the process in the community is that a nearest relative can ask for a mental health assessment or somebody within services could say we need a mental health assessment and that would involve an approved mental health practitioner and two doctors assessing someone deciding whether they do indeed pose a risk to self or others because of a mental health problem and being able to argue that detention is required for the protection of them or other people
0: and at that point if it is decided by those three professionals that that person is a heart, you know a threat to themselves or other people essentially their liberty can be taken away that a bit like being put in jail I suppose and who is it that actually takes you if you do not want to be put into a facility who is it that then takes you and how how does that work are the police involved? It, the police can be involved. So it can be quite a, a fractious moment, really.
4: Well, I think trying to get somebody to do something that they don't want to do is always a fairly emotive experience, doesn't it? Particularly if that is involving in taking away somebody's liberty. But, you know, like I was saying, I've worked with people who have had lifetimes of people being quite abusive and taking power away from them. So you can imagine what it's like when some people turn up and say, you have to go and reside in this place where you are not going to be allowed out of there.
1: And it was interesting to me, Keir, what you were saying about the private hospitals that have been deployed to sort of house people who are under the Mental Health Act. Presumably that's NHS patients who have then been referred to a private clinic that's been commissioned by the NHS. So it's not like, you know, anyone's paying for it other than the NHS.
4: Yeah, so predominantly, you know, so again, for my client groups, people would often go onto an acute ward. They would become more dangerous after they were admitted than before, and then people don't know what to do, so they will ask for a specialist unit to come and offer something useful. But the difficulty in this area is that I work with people who predominantly get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and there's no such thing as a specialist borderline personality disorder unit. You become a specialist unit by saying that you are one, so a lot of my experiences of going to units that claim to be specialist is that there's no specialism on offer. You know, I've had staff there say we haven't had any specialist training at all.
1: So what? how do they justify being a specialist unit? They just, because they have a lot of people there who have... A condition. Yeah,
4: you just say that that's what we are. Um, You know, you, you'll read a brochure and you'll generally read something about therapy being on offer. But again, recurrently in my experience, people get less specialist therapy than they can get in the community.
0: Do they get worse?
4: Well, they certainly get stuck, in my opinion. So, yes, you will often see people getting worse. We did a documentary for Radio 4 probably about a year ago now. And one of the people there was kind of saying how they had very rarely done anything dangerous in the community. But then once they had been admitted, they tried to kill themselves 25 times in the first three months. And the only response people could have then was obviously she needs to stay longer until things improve, as opposed to thinking, well, things have only deteriorated since she's walked through the door of our facility. You know, Why don't we change this environment around her and see if that can bring back some of the safety that was there before we compelled her to be safe? But again, I think people get very frightened about what would it look like if I open the door and let this person out now, given that they're more dangerous than when they walk through the door. And so I think we use a lot of restriction to avoid that potential to be blamed.
0: In my mind, there's been a move away from treating mental health patients in this way. The, 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 in the 60s, 70s, even 80s, we had these big mental health hospitals. They were called asylums in the 60s, weren't they? You know, I I thought that 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 had ended, but clearly not.
4: Well, I I, I think I would say so. There's a guy called Rob Poole who wrote an article called The Virtual Asylum, which kind of takes the argument that, yes, we have shut down these great big institutions, but there's a raft of private hospitals around the country that we export some of our most vulnerable people to. And the difficulty is, is then, you know, your local team doesn't have a good relationship with you because if you're 100 miles away, you know, it's very difficult for your care coordinator or your nurse or whatever to to keep in contact with you. It becomes very hard to keep people and, and bring people back. So people talk about these patients being funded and forgotten, which would be brilliant if we were sending people to top-of-the-range places where loads of therapy was happening and everybody was coming back a lot better. But actually, we're paying, for the people I work with, about £300,000 a year for care that I repeatedly see is significantly poorer than can be delivered in the community.
0: And how long do they stay in these places for?
4: Uh, So it would be really rare to see somebody get a specialist placement for less than a year. But again, I just see people get stuck there because... There are nice guidelines for working with the people I work with, and it just seems like the units I visit take a run and a jump from those nice guidelines. So people don't improve. So our evidence base is with working people in the community, not forcing them to stay safe. But that comes with a lot of anxiety. It comes with a lot of, what if something awful happens? And a way of managing that anxiety is to keep them in a place where they're forced to be safe. But that is a lot more for the staff around them than
1: it does for them. Keel, we know that the mental health provision of this country at the moment is very much on its knees and community care is really struggling. To what extent do you think this is related to people just not getting the support they need while they're living their daily lives and and being allowed to get sicker and sicker and sicker until they reach the point where they really are at crisis and, and at their worst?
4: I think there's probably a mix of things, really. I think community teams are a lot busier now than when I was working in them. I can remember people talking about caseloads in the 20s and 30s, 10, 15 years ago. And I think if you asked a community worker now how many people that you're working with, it's probably double that. So people, I think, often don't feel they can provide ongoing support that kind of keep people balanced and and offer something useful. I think people often feel that they're just putting out fires all the time. But then I think we've got another element that, you know, we are in possibly the most unequal that society has been for a long time. We have children living through pressures that their parents never had to live through in terms of social media and pressure to succeed. And I think what we're also seeing is a lot of understandable responses to a lot of things in society that would cause distress. Now, whether that should then mean that people are told they have mental health problems and sent to mental health professionals, I think we could be doing a lot in society to take a lot of pressure off our children. I think we could do a lot to kind of help people with housing and poverty, you know, That's the amount of people kind of coming into CMHT for being poor. And there's, there's not a tablet that cures that, you know, we we have to help people not live with as much distress as they have in this kind of uh, society we have at the moment.
1: Well, Keir Harding, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with us.
4: No
0: problem. You take care. Something you mentioned before to me, Eve, was that when you were a voluntary patient... Mm. That you were threatened
1: mm. with
0: being sectioned by the nurses. Yes. How did that work?
1: So interestingly, this wasn't I wasn't the only one that had this experience. When I ended up in the ward, I was told by lots of different patients that they'd had exactly the same conversations. So in the run-up to my admission, I was getting sicker and sicker and my weight was getting lower and lower and even more critical. I was on a day day patient programme. So it was i I'd come in at ten o'clock in the morning, go home every day. I was still losing weight on that programme and I was told that I needed to admit myself as a voluntary patient to the hospital inpatient unit and if I didn't do that, there is a good chance that the staff in the hospital would force me to do that and therefore issue a section order and admit me under the Mental Health Act. I was told that this was very likely to happen if I was to lose any more weight which at the time my body felt like it was completely out of my control and I I didn't feel like I was able to maintain weight, let alone put it on. And I was terrified of losing anything more because I thought this would happen. I mean, in my circumstance, to be honest, I I probably would have gone voluntarily anyway because everyone around me was telling me I, I needed to. But I know there are patients who only admitted themselves because they were so terrified of being forced to go so when i turned up to the ward there were several other patients who said i was told i had to come because otherwise they'd section me
0: and of course this is all i suppose a symptom of the fact that care in the community as it was, was called in the 80s when they they decided that they were going to clear out all the mental hospitals mm. and everyone was going to be cared for in the community that never happened
1: mm. i think that There was a shift and I do think that the idea was to support people in the community and there were mental health teams set up to do that. However, what's happened is demand has just soared and what was in place just isn't enough. And I think the demand is outstripping the supply. So you've got people becoming sicker and sicker and sicker and reaching a crisis point Mm. and there isn't anyone to deal with them at that crisis point. I also think my situation was quite unique in mental health because eating disorders has its own specialist teams and is also the only mental health condition where you you need that physical element. So hospitals are generally set up to deal with that, whereas as I understand things like personality disorders, perhaps people with mental health symptoms who don't fit into any sort of diagnostic criteria might end up slipping through cracks and not being picked up at Mm. all.
0: Something else that Keir said that I thought was interesting, that there's a socioeconomic angle to this, Mm. and that you've got people with these very difficult lives Mm. in situations where they're in poverty, unemployment, very difficult family lives, and really there's nothing as well, that you can offer to fix that anyway. So the people that, that just really break down and can't cope with having awful lives anymore just get imprisoned mm. for having a breakdown,
1: it's which a, is
0: not the right way of going about
1: terrible it. Terrible state of affairs. And what, I mean, the thing from my experience that I always felt was really sad was the fact that it's such a waste. You get this real feeling that it's a waste because certainly all the people that I was in hospital with, including the people who were in, in there on a section order have a, some sort of talent or skill or interest that they would have absolutely flown with if they had half the chance. And people who were there caring for them don't really have an interest in that. They're just there to issue the medication, you know, make sure they don't go out and kill themselves.
0: It does lead me to wonder what solution there is to this. And the Mental Health Act is being revised at the moment. They're specifically looking at making sure people with learning disabilities don't Mm. end up in this trap. But clearly this needs to be addressed, that there are a wider group of patients who are being inappropriately sectioned. You know, I mean, if there's been a rise year on year, something needs to change. We can't just keep on locking people up.
1: Mm, I think one quite obvious solution, maybe to make sure that there is appropriate investment in acute mental health problems and people who do need really intensive care in hospital, because I think that kind of section of mental illness is often not really looked at because it seems it seems like it's too scary or it's you know the crazy person on the side of the street and we if we just put them all in a hospital we don't have to think about it but actually there are a lot of people who need that kind of support and could have a very fulfilled life outside of hospital and we need to make sure that we're giving that attention as well as preventing things from getting worse in the community
0: Well, that's all we've got time for. You can read all about this and all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format, on the Mail app or on mailplus.co.uk.
1: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.